Welcome. This week's podcast from The Book Collector is a trip down Nostalgia Lane. Country Collecting was written by Alan Wallbank and published in The Book Collector in its issue for spring 1957. One of the accepted pleasures of the 18th century tourist in England was book collecting en route. Travellers' diaries mention their finds in old bookshops almost as often as they quote epitaphs from country churchyards or bills of fare at country inns. After dinner at Loughborough, notes John Bing in the account of his most laborious journey into distant countries performed June 1789, I walked to a bookseller's, more intelligent and of better books than I've seen in my tour, but nothing, however, to tempt so dainty a collector as I am. At Daventry, he found the bookshop good, but the bookseller crusty and unpleasant. A visit to Bramhall Hall, Derbyshire, eldest of all the old striped houses, provided a chest of old books, rotting or used for waste, that contains what I and other antiquarians pant for. At Lincoln, he looks out for blacks. Whatever strange town he enters, he takes his bookseller walk to see if there's anything curious to be got. Not always, of course, with success. There are tantalising experiences like that at Macclesfield, where the stationer to whom he applied for old books answered with contempt that whenever he got such, he tore them up for covers. The traveller in England today can still indulge that same pleasure, and often with profit, if he steers clear of the obvious tourist beats. Setting aside for this inquiry the well-known shops in cathedral and university towns, the piquant country addresses from which certain dealers send out their select catalogues, let him seek out casual places almost off the map. A small town in the empty East Anglican counties, some early, fast-fading coastal resort, perhaps a market centre in the remoter dales, these are some of the places where trouvée of interesting books may occur. Much of the pleasure in country collecting lies in discovery of the shop itself. It will not, as a rule, display itself to the eyes of travellers merely passing through or show its best goods in the middle of the window. If the place has the right atmosphere, however, that sixth sense known to collectors will lead to some side street at the older, shabbier end of the town, to a cul-de-sac beside the church or an inconspicuous alley debouching from the square. Even there, the country bookseller seems shy of revealing his habitat, Either he has a one-room shop which is locked two days out of three, or else a cover occupation. It may be that the village hardware dealer will have at the rear an annex full of dusty calf, sporting and topographical books, Dickens novels in parts, or a piano store behind an almost empty promenade will disclose a cubbyhole full of local romancers and lesser poets whose first editions have become collectors' prizes since their day. There is double excitement of the chase in adding a new quarry of this kind to one's private list, and then in the chance of being the first to spot a rarity. One of my first discoveries was made in a narrow street of secret-looking houses directly off the quay of a forgotten fishing port in North Norfolk. The shop had two windows, one full of witch balls, trinket trays and relics of low-stuffed ware, the other of trusses and surgical belts. 
for which a placard stated that repairs could be done on the premises. The half-open door, however, revealed within three dark walls crammed with books. They were mainly old volumes of sermons, Augustan poets, 19th century novels and a few florilegia. Only one took my fancy. Lefanu's The Fortunes of Colonel Tollow O'Brien with 22 plates by Fizz, Dublin, 1847. But as I was paying for it, the shopkeeper asked casually whether watercolours were of any interest to me. Then from behind a curtain screening the trusses waiting for repair, he produced a delicate original by G. J. Pinwell, the pre-Raphaelite artist, and named a ridiculously low price. Whenever I look at it now, I see him, surrounded by witch balls and sermons and surgical belts, a surrealist among country booksellers. Another chance of the kind that collector and antiquarian alike pant for came my way in Norfolk. Stopping one day on a bridge to admire the line of old buildings that sloped down to the river from the marketplace of Wyndham, I noticed in the background a haulier's shed. Behind its ribbed glass windows there was a dim pile of something that seemed of familiar shape. I peered in and saw with a tremor of anticipation a crazy pile of tumbled volumes. The haulier did not mind my rummaging. It was only stuff he had had to bring from country house sales along with other effects. And there, heaped precariously on window ledges or disgorged from sacks on the oily floor, were the relics of a baronet's library. Military memoirs, French classics, albums of engravings, English miscellanea. I picked out one or two of the scarcer items, each carrying the bookplate, of Sir Wyndham Dalling. There was the life of John Bunkle, Esquire, Thomas Amory's eccentric work of fiction, published in two volumes, 1756-66, to 66. its hero, an odd compound of a man, marries seven wives in succession and digresses liberally on medicine, geology, antiquities and also on Edmund Curl, the bookseller who lost his ears for printing The Nun in Her Smock. There were also Swift's poetical works from Faulkner's first collected edition, Dublin, 1735, a copy of Pope's Odyssey, with the lesser poet William Mason's dated signature, 1752, on the flyleaf a set of Henry Mackenzie's lounger, noteworthy for its handsome spine designing gilt, of mermaids holding a mirror up to the sun, and so on. When I inquired the price, the haulier balanced these elegant tree-calf volumes in his hands for a moment before naming it. It was the price per pound of waste paper. It is always tempting, though seldom profitable, to speculate on how one's finds have travelled such distances in time and space before being gathered again to the shelves. From Norfolk, for instance, to North Yorkshire is no simple journey, but it was there, in an old Quaker chapel up the Dales, that I found the four volumes of Horace Walpole's correspondence in half-green Morocco, Coburn, 1820, which according to the inscription of a previous owner had come from Worsted in Norfolk. Along with them, in that distempered gallery with its scrubbed benches and brackets for oil lamps on the walls, was a first edition of Clare's Village Minstrel in Original Boards, published by Taylor and Hesse, 1821, the year following their publication of Keats' Odes. Much else of less attraction, though, 
Smollett's History of England and Crabbe's Tales, each in 10 or 11 volumes, Hogarth's Analysis of Beauty and a selection of Rochester's poems lay round about. It was not difficult to discover why. The chapel, fallen into disuse and incidentally pulled down in 1955, served as a depository for a local auctioneer who ran his own small bookshop on Saturdays and market days in the neighbouring town. But what brought my Walpole from Worcester in his family county to Wensleydale is a question that remains unanswered. Village furniture stores and sale rooms are occasionally worth trying for the relics of gentlemen's libraries that they haphazardly collect. If, however, anyone asked to see a typical family library of the late Victorian period, I should introduce him to a certain village institute on the border of Westmoreland. Along the wall there, with the billiard cue racks and fishing trophies, several large cupboards display score upon score of the three deckers that made Mudie's name, Trollope and Mary Braddon, Henry Cockton, Rita and William Black, Mrs Wood and Winkle Collins, all in original cloth, together with not a few of the anonymous or completely forgotten titles, such as Fast and Loose, A Left-Handed Marriage, She Wore a Wreath of Roses, Tales of a Lonely Parish, The Dailies of Sodden Fen, no doubt they were all given by the founder and benefactor of the Institute, whose sepia portrait over the fireplace becomes yearly more evanescent. And whether from good intention or unconcerned, he sipped among them a first edition or two of Elizabeth Browning as well. In a tiny Dales township of less than a thousand souls, one scarcely expects to meet with a reputable antique dealer, much less an antiquarian bookseller, but, well... Five miles from a railway station, and secluded among the high fells, has both combined. A fine English sideboard, with the date 1682, and its owner's initials carved upon it, standing outside a cottage doorway in the cobbled street, advertised the antique side of the business. The spinning wheels and farmhouse lustre, rush-bottomed chairs and Baxter print seemed the usual stock in trade, but, crowding a dark back room, the staircase and the bedrooms, there were books upon books. A somewhat nervous search, in which one false move would have smashed a deal of precariously perched china, brought to light, quite literally, a copy of John Stowe's Chronicles of England, not the earliest edition, to be sure, but a nice one of 1611, an Elsevier Tacitus in 17th century binding, and, propping up a back shelf, the two volumes of Dr. Johnson's Dictionary. If it was not a first either, as an edition revised by the author, Dublin 1775, and clad in full calf with gilt spine and Morocco labels, it was at any rate worth the ten shillings of its price. Moreover, as I was gingerly fumbling out of the shop, I caught sight of a shelf in the shadow behind a drop-leaf table with a tight-wedged row of coloured spines. There, for a shilling apiece, were a couple of dozen yellowbacks and greenbacks, as one might well call bone series of 1850, with their green papered boards and cover design in blue and red, Reitlich's Railway Library series, from 1849, in green and blue, and Hodgson's Parlour Library, 1853 on, 
Nothing surprising perhaps about that assembly, except that in many cases the condition was mint and the spines perfect. They might have been on the shelf from the day when they were first bought. One of my most serendipitous experiences is connected with yellowbacks. For a literary venture some years ago, I had need of certain titles by the Duchess, pseudonym of an Irish writer of popular Victorian romances. The need was pressing, and so, not surprisingly, invaded my subconscious. In a dream one night, I saw the three books, picture-board faces upwards, displayed in a small, bow-windowed shop in some unidentified place. The dream faded, a month elapsed. Then, unexpectedly, I had to pass an idle half-hour in a market town which I had not visited before. As John Bing would have done, I took my bookseller walk, or rather it seemed to take me. Without hesitation, my steps led out of the marketplace, along a narrow cul-de-sac, and to the side premises of an ironmonger's. There, in a dusty bow window, dark red, green and yellow faces upward lay my three titles, Molly Bourne, Rosmoyne, Faith and Unfaith, published by Smith Elder and written by the Duchess, that is, Mrs. Hungerford, ne Margaret Hamilton. In the course of time, I have discarded the others, but I still keep faith and unfaith. Although one cannot expect to fly very high in country collecting, by way of compensation, there is always the potential element of surprise. Every new journey leads to terra incognita, which may, so hope always springs, turn out to be El Dorado. Often enough, of course, the location of some small cache of books produces nothing worthwhile except a glimpse of the characters who keep these out-of-way shops. So in Haworth, full as it is of places where they offer curios, I drew a blank. But I met a small bookseller who considered himself a lineal descendant of the Brontes and was ready to discuss them like one of the family. The sole supporting evidence of this was that her son had suddenly developed galloping consumption at the age of 23, a characteristic Bronte failing. In a Suffolk seaside village, on the other hand, where Wilson Steer used to paint, a small circulating library produced for me a complete set of the yellow book, to which Steer contributed, in pristine brightness of condition and at half the original price per volume. And again, one windy March day, when a sudden squall of hail drove me into an old furniture shop among the woollen mills of the West Riding. Expecting nothing, I came out with nice first editions of Nothing, Loving and Doting by Henry Green. The dealer had pushed them into a corner with a few paperback novels. Not least among the surprises is the juxtaposition of items. A junk shop, for example, with a worn black Wedgwood tea service in the window, lately drew me in to find a corner cupboard full of family books. There were Bibles and Bunyan, Wesley's sermons, and Hogarth moralised by the Reverend John Trussler, while alongside leaned Vanbrugh's provoked wife and a Minerva-pressed tale of terror. At the end of Volume 4, below an announcement of the homicide, its last owner had written in faded brown ink, and I quote, A capital book. Full of interest, formerly grandma's. 
No one will suppose that for the collector there are fresh woods in every English county, or that in every wood trees may be found bearing plums. Many antiquarian bookshops, especially those in the older provincial towns, have closed in recent years. Many have sadly depreciated in stock. But there are areas, such as the fringes of the Lake District, Dorset, the Essex-Suffolk border, where searches may not be in vain. To every man his folly, spending one's leisure in quiet and picturesque places can be reward enough in itself. But to pick out from a pavement display of bric-a-brac the glorious architectural portfolio of Fonthill Abbey that once fell to my lot is to feel able to say with Beckford, I grow rich and build towers. Read by James Fleming, Country Collecting, was written by Alan Wallbank and published in The Book Collector in its issue for spring 1957. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues Plus, get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.